Welcome to JPL Aviation, where leadership and aviation take off. Today, our guest leader is Brian Bartlett, who served as an air traffic controller for most of his life, serving in five different places. El Toro Marine Base, Santa Monica Tower, Long Beach Tower, 22 years at John Wayne Tower, and lastly, two years in Seattle Tower, where they build the Max 8 777s. The use of pictures and video in this podcast can be accessed by going to jplavation.com and visiting our subscriber page. Your subscriptions help support this podcast and keep us providing new aviation content every single week. Welcome, Brian. Welcome. Sweet. So, as an air traffic controller, it's a very unique job in aviation. Every person from pilots in training to non-aviation citizens know that pilots have a language or person that they communicate with while navigating their airplane. However, many people, even pilots, don't actually know what an air traffic controller does. In order to discuss what you do every day, let's dive back into what made you into a successful air traffic controller and leader. So, uh, where are you from and like, what's your background? Uh, I'm, I'm from uh, right here in Orange County. I grew up in Anaheim Hills, um, graduated from Canyon High School. And then uh, from there, uh, I went uh, immediately to study for my private pilot's um, ground school and take the, uh, and do all the flying. And then uh, when I had finished, I wanted to continue to uh, work towards an airline pilot career. But uh, in the 80s, in the mid-80s, they were furloughing a lot of airline pilots. So I uh, switched uh, careers to air traffic control. Got it. Air traffic control is kind of a... It probably wasn't a prominent route to go back then, I'm assuming. Probably not. No, but after President Reagan fired all the air traffic controllers, um, I was right at the right place at the right time, so I fit right in. Um, So growing up, did you know anything about aviation when you were young? Uh, I went to a lot of uh, air shows to watch the Blue Angels, and I knew that when I watched air shows that there was something I wanted to do in aviation. So you were telling me, um, or before this, you told me that you also were in the medical field before you entered aviation. I was. So I worked at, uh, before uh, all my aviation career started, I worked at uh, Kaiser Hospital in surgical pathology for about uh, six years, and that paid for most of my flying. And what ages was that at for you? Uh, It's probably 19 to 24, 25 years old. And so when it came to the transition from obviously the medical field to aviation, what was the biggest, the money you said was there because of the six years in a medical, which is important, um, but the transition mentally from going from uh, surgery to aviation, what did you have to change about your life, your lifestyle, what, like what kind of um, changed? Well, that's a good question. I'd have to think, but um uh, air traffic controlled, uh, you have to initially take the written test and get a very high score on the written test. From there, they send you to Oklahoma City to the uh, air traffic control at the FAA Air Traffic Control Academy. And that is um, brutal. It, that's more than that's um, that'll use 18 hours of your day every day just studying and going to class and all that. So it was pretty brutal and tough. So in my experience, um, involving all the studying that you have to do, um, just for as a a private pilot myself, you have to study a lot on your own um, and you have to kind of develop habits for that. So what was your your studying routine like and how did you implement it into your everyday life? 
Uh, it, it's quite your first facility. Um, there is quite a bit of studying because you have to learn that whole uh, air traffic control manual, which is, I don't know how many thousands of pages. Um, so I, <clears throat> I studied that in all my spare time, even on my breaks at my facility, I would study that book. So there is a lot of groundwork and studying, but after your first facility and you've learned all the basic uh, separation rules and how to run airplanes, you can uh, get away from that uh, studying, classroom studying, and um, you're, you're pretty much finished with that after your first facility. And so when you were transitioning from the medical to aviation, you did you have a job at this time? Were you living on your own? Were you still with your family? Or? Uh, the academy actually pays you to go there. So that was my job. Even though I was at the academy, they pay, they pay you quite well. They pay you, um, uh, they pay your regular pay. I don't know what the hourly pay was. I can't remember. They pay you um, your room and board and then your transportation to get to and from the academy. Uh, so they paid you quite well. I had a lot of money left when I left the academy, um, so it worked out really well. That's that's awesome. And as far as medical field goes, I'm assuming your parents were pretty involved um, to help you kind of nurture you. And to... they, they, they were not, so it's a long story, but they were not. Here at JP Elevation, that's the type of stuff we like to talk about because people who are successful like yourself who have – obviously, uh, everything comes from something, right? And so anybody who has success, like I've seen um, in my own life talking with people, um, that – it's always kind of stemmed from somebody else. They had mentors in life. They had somebody pushing them where they needed to go. Um, and so I was wondering if there's anybody in your life growing up that kind of... <clears throat> I had no mentor. I had nobody pushing me. My parents left California when I was, I think, 14 years old. And I told them they went back east to Pennsylvania. And I told them I wasn't going to go. I was going to stay in California. And they said, as long as you can find a place to to uh, live in California, you can stay. So that's what I did. And I had nobody to help push me. I had no mentors. It was just the desire I had that I wanted to go through, uh, have an aviation career. So you really definitely had a passion for what you were doing. That's, that's beautiful because most people don't have that nowadays. You know, they kind of just, they have stuff given to them and they kind of go yeah. for it. But to, the, to your parents leaving you and you were saying, all oh, right, I need to survive. So I need to not only pay for myself, but I need to pay for my goals that I'm chasing after too. Or uh, just like kind of your everyday expenses is, is uh, pretty, pretty inspiring. Yeah. So by the time I was 16 years old, I was literally on my own. I paid for everything. I bought my car. Uh, I paid all the tuition for my college. So, uh, I was by 16, I was literally on my own. Nobody was giving me money for anything. Uh, and that it, it worked out for the best though. And how much would you say rent was in California back then? Um, I, I don't recall to tell you the truth. Got it. I think a, a normal like studio goes for around like 1300 now in this area per month, yeah, which is so pretty insane. Uh, working a minimum wage job for most people, it's kind of hard to have a little leisure time. Um, Awesome. So is there anything else about your childhood that kind of made you into who you are, shaped you, kind of give you that passion besides your parents kind of saying, all right, we're leaving. Good luck. I can't, re I don't, I, I don't think there was. So it was just, I wanted to be uh, a pilot and I wanted to do something in aviation. That was my desire <clears throat> and goal. So that was it. 
just the internal fire, I guess you had. Pretty much, yeah. And you said when you first wanted to do aviation, what gave you that fire from transitioning, right? What was the thing that said, I'm going to go for it? I took just a aviation course. I was I uh, went to uh, Fullerton Junior College just for one semester after I graduated uh, from high school. And they had a basic aviation course. The instructor was a pilot, and he took us up. Uh, on one of the days, and that day I knew I was going to be a pilot. So that's how I got started, really. And then um, coming up is the uh, time you spent as an air traffic controller, correct? Um, after the, the medical field. So what, um, when you first started off, what was the first tower that you operated in and how did you get there? Uh, I was at uh, El Toro Marine Base at uh, in the TRACON portion. on, um, So I did all the uh, radar stuff in the, in the, um, for SoCal at uh, when that was at El Toro Marine Base. And then uh, that was kind of a radar environment. And I did not want to do that. I just thought I was more suited to work up in a control tower. So I transferred to Santa Monica Tower. And El Toro Marine Base isn't there anymore today, correct? Correct. They moved all the air and traffic controllers from the uh, from that Tracon building to San Diego near uh, Miramar. So all the controllers that work right are for LAX, Van Nuys, Burbank, Ontario, John Wayne, Fullerton, Long Beach, Palomar, and I think Palm Springs were all moved to uh, one building in San Diego. And you said it was TRACON you were working, correct? Yeah, uh, TRACON stands for Terminal Radar Approach Control. So it was you were working the approach control for the five basic uh, airports in Orange County. And so you were um, when you were transitioning um, to, to El Toro, how long did that process take? Not very long. Uh, well, the training lasted, I think, two years. And what consisted of the training? Like, I'm trying to dive into how you got there. Was it like a lottery pick? Was there a bunch of people that were trying for your, your spot? Or was it kind of pretty open? Or When you go through the academy after you graduate from the academy, uh, they give you a list of uh, facilities that you give them a wish list, which they generally do not go by anyways. They need you, they, they'll give you a list of facilities where they need you the most. Um, they'll try to place you as close as they can in your let's say if you're from Southern California, usually the facilities are going to give you are in Arizona, California, Oregon, Washington, and Hawaii. So they give you a list of where they need you the most. There was, uh, El Toro was one of them. And that was close. Uh, I think that one was the closest to my house. So I picked that. And the academy that you're speaking about, where was it? And how did you get into it? That's in, that is in uh, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. That's the FAA headquarters. So after you pass your written test, which I took right here in Santa Ana in the federal building, after you get uh, a high, a decent high score for them, uh, at the time for me, it was you had to have a 95 or above. So after that, you take um, a, phys- a medical, a physical, and the FBI has to do a background uh, security clearance on you. If you pass those two, then um, you're on your way. They pay for you to go out to Oklahoma City for three months. If you pass the uh, Oklahoma City training program, then you, there's another one-month follow-on, but um, you're paid the entire time you're over there. 
Got it. So it definitely seems like a good deal to get into if people are looking for an outlet in aviation. Yeah. So if you're, I believe the requirements now are four-year degree or three years of work experience, and then you can take the written test. And as long as you do well on the written test, um, you'll be going to the academy. And now the academy is just pass or fail. When I went there, you had to have uh, 70 or above, but getting a 70 at that academy was very, very tough. I think I got an 88, but that was even a 70 to at the academy back then was extremely tough. It was all non-radar uh, approach control. So you had to mentally keep track of all the planes in your head, assuming you've lost your radar and you're working a center like LA Center. And um, they inundate you with airplanes and it's all a mental picture in your head that you're keeping them separated. So... Um, and how often were they grilling this training into you? Because that sounds every really day, hard. every Monday through Friday, and then um, you you're tested continually. So you have to continually do well on the test. If you don't, you're just so out of. I think the initial input for the West Coast when I took it was ten thousand applicants. Out of the out of that, only a thousand passed the written test. Those thousand went to Oklahoma City, and then out of those thousand. Only 300 passed. So a 30% uh, pass rate, right? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. That's crazy. Pretty much. So when the people that are the 30%, the top 30%, the 300 that you spoke about, obviously there's a rank in there of people who do better than others and not. So the top people is how do they get dispersed throughout the country? So I luckily I was uh, the second highest in the input. So you get to choose first. The people who with the highest scores get to pick their facilities first. The people with the lowest scores pick last. And sometimes they'll end up at uh, towers that they don't want to be at, like LAX, and then you're not even guaranteed a job because you still have to go through their training program. Even though you've passed the academy, when you go to your first facility, you have to pass the training program for that facility. If you don't, you're out of a job. So it sounds pretty rigorous is what I'm assuming. Yeah. So even though you're done with training in the academy, you still have got two to three more years of training at your first facility, which can still be pretty brutal. That's awesome. So you are definitely a, a trooper for sticking through all that and making, the, making yourself into the man that you are now. Yeah, it was tough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Need to say the least, right? Um, and so after your... Uh, time at El Toro, you got transferred to Santa Monica. What was the reason for that transfer, and how does that... Because I was government-regulated, obviously, FAA yes. traffic controllers. Yeah, so I did not... Uh, I was, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I did not want to work in a radar room or in a radar environment. It just... I didn't want to be in a dark room all day. It was very challenging. The pay was good, um, but... Um, I just wasn't suited for the radar environment, working in a dark room, looking at, at a radar scope, scope all day. So I wanted to work at a tower, and um, Santa Monica was the first one available. That I, so I chose that one, and they transferred me to that one. And Santa Monica is a beautiful airport. I've personally been there. Can you describe your time spent at that airport, noting any major growth experiences that you had as a controller? Or just uh, when you went there transitioning from the radar environment to something that you wanted to be in, how did that affect your performance? It, uh, it was basically starting all over from scratch because <clears throat> I had learned how to separate aircrafts on a radar scope looking directly in front of me. And then now when I go to a control tower, 
I have a 360 degree view of open windows and I have to make sure all the airplanes are separated by looking out uh, of the windows. And then I have a radar scope too in the tower, but generally you're focused uh, primarily looking outside the windows to keep the airplane separated. And obviously throughout your training, you had to mentally visualize where those airplanes were. And so now when you got put in an environment where you physically get to see and track every single airplane, would you say it made that transition easier or uh, just the process of your everyday life easier at the tower? It did. It kind of did. Um, but however, working at Santa Monica in the late 80s, I was inundated with airplanes like I've never seen before. And having to do that for a first tower was pretty tough. So I had to get used to working many, many, many airplanes of all different performance, anything from little Cessnas to Gulf Streams. And they all have to be organized, as you know. Getting all of them sequenced in with having a clear runway when each one lands was pretty tough because of their performance characteristics. Which makes sense because sequencing is very important in the regards to safety at each airport. However, though, it helped me immensely when I got to John Wayne because John Wayne is pretty much the same thing except they have two runways. And I was able to transition very easily. Well, I went from Santa Monica to Long Beach to John Wayne. But having the Santa Monica experience uh, under my belt, I was uh, it was very easy for me to transition to John Wayne because I could work little planes with big planes very easily and it worked out really well. In regards to working little planes with big planes, um, how do you approach each one? Well, at John Wayne, I have a basic rule that I always taught my trainees. <clears throat> big planes go to the big runway. Little planes go to the little runway. Which makes sense. <laughs> and it works out very well. Don't put the, the circle in the square hole, right? <laughs> yeah, it, so it works out very well. There's other controllers that each one of us has our own uh, technique, but that's what I use, and it worked very well. So after your time at Santa Monica. You then went to Long Beach Tower, and that's where we got to have our little uh, field trip, as we would call it, um, which I was very blessed to go do, and I'm thank you for letting me do that. You're welcome. And so Long Beach Tower is an awesome place, as I know, because I had the privilege of being able to go there. I know you were working there years ago, but let's kind of take a mental trip back to the facility. Before entering the tower itself, there's a small elevator with the words, let the efficiency begin. On an analytical level of an air traffic controller job, why did Long Beach Tower pick this motto? And does every tower kind of have like a motto like that? Believe it or not, that sign wasn't there when I worked there. Oh. <laughs> However, um, the FAA does send all the towers some banners and stuff from time to time that we do put up, but they're all the same. So did John Wayne have like a motto or? They did not. So this is just a Long Beach thing. Yeah, it is. So after traveling up a very small elevator, the room was probably about like 30 feet wide in a hexagonic shape, I believe? Yes. Is that every control tower that's a hexagon? Uh, kind, basically, yes. Do you know why it's a hexagon? Because, well, part of it is the windows. When you build the tower, basically will not work structurally. I, they explained it to me. Also, the bigger the facility, the more people you have in the tower, and then there's more people looking at different angles. So the hexagonal shape kind of helps when, if there's a lot of positions in the tower. The view, which makes sense because obviously more sides equals more windows. Um, and so once we got inside the control tower, it wasn't too busy, which was super nice because I was able to ask a bunch of questions, which we are now going to discuss. And I believe Joel was your friend. Joel, yes. Joel was a great guy, very helpful. He took the time to walk me through everything, which I was really thankful about. Um, so 
at each station in the tower. So in the tower, obviously, you have your control. I mean, you have your uh, clearance, you have your ground, you have your tower, and then you have the tower local, right? It's called the the local controller and then the local assist. Um, so uh, at Long Beach Tower, they have two local controllers. Uh, one guy's working basically two runways and the other guy's working two runways or they share the long runway. And then there's assist to help each one of the local controllers when it's busy. The four stations. And here at JPL Aviation, we have the pictures and videos up on the screen that you'll be able to see. If you want to view these pictures and videos we are talking about during this interview while supporting the show, you can access them through our subscription service. Go to jplaviation.com and visit our subscription page. You can access all the content with the subscription and you'll be automatically added to our exciting email list for aviation news, updates on my life, and where JPL Aviation is headed to next. So in this tower station, um, the first step of when you're calling in as a pilot to go um, land at the airport is you have to get the weather. And so we have the ATIS making machine. So I remember our friend Joel, he says, here, watch this. I'm about to make the ATIS. And I'm like, oh, nerdy stuff. This is cool. (laughs) Um, And so he comes over and grabs this telephone and he plugs it into whatever machine this is and makes the ATIS himself. So can you kind of describe the process of that? Yeah, so uh, this board right here will usually... Uh, the weather will pop up on there and uh, from what it, whatever weather station is transferring it to them. Uh, at Long Beach Tower, the ATIS is a manual ATIS. So that uh, using the switches and that telephone, um, he'll talk into the telephone and uh, advise which runways are in use, the current weather and any pertinent uh, NOTAMs that are uh, available that should be on the ATIS. Uh, as opposed to John Wayne, it's a digital ATIS. A computer makes the ATIS, and uh, the clearance delivery guy is relieved of making any kind of ATIS um, at John Wayne. So you obviously prefer a digitized version over I do, because uh, clearance delivery position at John Wayne is extremely busy. So if just taking the load off of... Um, not having to make an ATIS at John Wayne helps quite a bit. Which makes sense because obviously every moment you're in the tower is crucial because if planes are coming in and out, taking time to make the weather is definitely something that can be cut yeah, out. Well, technology. John Wayne is short, so normally they have an IFR clearance delivery frequency and a VFR clearance delivery frequency. However, since they're short, one guy is working both of the frequencies, so he's continually telling the VFR guys, please stand by. And then while he reads uh, VFR clearances, he may have to tell the IFR guys to stand by. But um, that uh, Long Beach is def- is uh, is the manual latest where you make you talk into it and make it yourself. And so when we are looking at this screen, um, which he was interpreting the ATIS from uh, or making the weather from, uh, it says METAR KLGB, which is a, a METAR is kind of the, the aviation broadcast for that weather. I mean, for that airport itself within a five nautical mile radius. And so when you're interpreting the weather, um, what is kind of your, is this part of your school training that you had to learn all the weather? And- yes, they, they teach you <clears throat> the weather in the academy at Oklahoma City. So by the time you get to your first facility, uh, they've taught you at Oklahoma how to make a manual uh, ATIS by talking into a mic and being able to read the METAR. So when you do get to your first facility, you're all set and you're not nervous about making, talking on a mic and making an ATIS. It's pretty smooth. So once the weather is done being made, 
It is the job of the tower to guide the planes of their destination, which can start on a strip of paper, which is like the flight plans, um, as we'll see on this next slide. But they come from that machine, uh, which Joel was able to show us. How would you interpret the strips? Uh, the top strip is uh, at the very top would be the call sign. Uh, the number one that's circled means it's an amendment one. Something has been changed in his flight plan. Uh, I don't know what it is on this one. Uh, the next line below that means he's flying a Gulfstream 4 uh, Slant Lima. The Slant Lima, I believe, is dual EFIS uh, in the cockpit. The, the Slant and then the letter follow is usually the equipment that the aircraft has. Uh, the 079 is just, um, is just the CID. Um, it's just the number of the strip. But generally, we use the call sign. And the next box on the top, 4635, is the squawk he's going to be issued. The next... And um, the squawk code, just for everybody, is something that the you pin into your transponder so that ATC can see you on the radar. Yes, every airplane has its own uh, discrete squawk. So once he tunes that in into his transponder, we get a discrete um, display on our radar scope, even on ground and in the air. With this, uh, with this aircraft's call sign, his ground speed, his uh, altitude, and all kinds of other information, just using that squawk on his transponder. The uh, next bo box below it is um, the P means proposed. He's proposed at twenty-one thirty. Uh, that's Zulu time. So uh, subtract seven or eight hours, depending on the time of the year. Zulu time is universal coordinated time from um, Greenwich, England. From Greenwich, <clears throat> England. So. Uh, that's something in your aviation training that you're going to learn and that you have to either add or subtract depending where you are. So the net, the box below that where it says uh, 30 is actually short for 3,000. That's going to be his final altitude. And he, the reason why he's only going up to 3,000 is if you look at the next block over where it says Long Beach, Seal Beach, Vortac, and then John Wayne Airport. So it's a Gulfstream taking out of Long Beach. He's only going to be in the air for a very short time. So he's only getting 3,000 as an altitude uh, as opposed to 30,000 going to maybe Vegas or somewhere else. A Gulfstream is a, a pretty large aircraft. So when they're filing at 3,000, you'd go, hmm, you wonder why. But then obviously as you're interpreting the strip, you're saying, okay, this, all these strips that he's reading off of at this airport specifically, um, the only strips that come in are IFR flight plans, which is instrument flying and the aspect of um, he's using means of uh, ground-based facilities to navigate through the air. And so how, how far do you think uh, John Wayne is from Long Beach? What do you think, like 25 miles? I could be way off. <laughs> no, I was going to say maybe 17. 17? <clears throat> that was close, 25, 17, not horrible. It's in the ballpark. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so at 3,000, when you're calling into clearance to basically make your flight plan, 3,000 feet is kind of the altitude that the jet's going to climb up to and then descend to as he's traveling from Long Beach to John Wayne. Um, and then the Part 135 flight, what does that mean? That means it's an air taxi flight. Uh, FAA Part 135 is uh, air taxi, which means he's going to be flying passengers for hire. And Part 135 also is a FAR, um, Federal Aviation Regulation, and you can check those out at jplaviation.com where we will dissect the FAR aim and learn everything about it that you desire. So moving on to the next trip, just to kind of give us our uh, um, a different example of one. 
so all day, uh, all day long from the moment we open the tower till we close, uh, we get uh, flow control messages all day long from different airports across the country. Uh, it can be anything. Usually it's weather related, uh, but sometimes incidents happen. Maybe a pla- plane will land on the runway with no landing gear and he shuts a runway down and they have to start flow control into that airport because uh, they've got to clean up the plane off the runway and uh, traffic starts to build up rapidly. So then they have to institute flow control. There's many reasons why, but generally the most, uh, the usual is weather related. So the, uh, the one right below the flight strip um, is uh, from the DEN means uh, Denver airport and the GS stands for ground stop. And that means any aircraft at your airport that is either taxing out or you've read a clearance to, or even he's just holding shore of the runway, getting ready for takeoff, and he's going to Denver, he cannot go. It's a ground stop, and that means nobody else can be launched into the air uh, during a ground stop for that particular airport. Denver was obviously going through some bad weather at this point. They were having thunderstorms when you and I were up there, so that's what generated this. It says right at the end, due to TS, which is thunderstorms. Which most jets will be able to get to Denver in a very quick time, so by the time they got there, the thunderstorms would probably still be... uh... Yeah, so um, in the wintertime, it's usually uh, snow in most of the country that generates this kind of ground stop activity. Um, the next one below that, it's the ground delay program in effect to Fort Lauderdale. Who knows what that, that could have been for Tiger Woods going back home or something. Who, I have no Celebrities, idea. Celebrities, yeah. Yeah, I mean, ground it could delaying. have been a golf tournament. Um, I have no idea why. And then, um, so when there's a ground delay program, usually means we have to call LA Center for a flow time for that plane to, and they... They'll give you a time with a two-minute window, and then that time ha- that aircraft has to be released during that two-minute window for to meet his flow control time. That's just how precise the travel industry is, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. And for LA Center, um, can you give a brief description of what they do as you're working with them for the tower? Sure. So when a plane takes off from a given airport, usually they're handed off to in Southern California. They go to SoCal. And their airspace, I believe, goes up to, since I'm retired, I'm guessing it's somewhere around 15,000 to 18,000 feet. Don't quote them. <laughs> yeah. So once they get, uh, once they're heading above that airspace into high altitude airspace, they're shipped off to one of the air traffic control centers in the country. Um, I cannot remember how many there are, but um, Los Angeles Center is based in Palmdale, California, and they're responsible for separating all the jets at high altitude. And so the way, the way I learned it is that you kind of have your, your tower, which kind of controls the airspace around the airport. And then you have the, um, further layers of radar as you go higher up in altitude that kind of cover all the jets that are flying around at the higher altitudes from what I've understood. Yeah. Some people describe the airspace as a upside down wedding cake. It kind of goes up and out as you get through, uh, go to different facilities. So for people who don't know anything about aviation, so basically when you're flying in an airline, there's always someone watching over you most of the time, which is nice at the higher altitudes. 100% of the time. Got it. 100% of the time. Quote Brian. So, (laughs) 
Um, Unless uh, maybe you're going to somewhere, you know, in Asia or somewhere where they don't have uh, that's air traffic of, control. Out right? of the country, but that's, yeah, little, but that's a little in the too United States, <laughs> In the United States, uh, it's 100% of the time an aircraft will be monitored by some air traffic controller. Just for safety purposes, <clears throat> correct? Correct. So after clearance delivery is done, as, as a pilot, you're calling into clearance to get a flight plan to go somewhere. And so once that flight plan is done, you're done making it, they'll switch you over to ground, which allows the pilot to move around the taxiways of an airport. What is the ground controller tasked with doing specifically to move the airplane about the taxiways? Like what's kind of his job description and, and mentality as you're working that station? Uh, ground control can still be very busy at, uh, depending on what airport you look, work at. Uh, you can still be, sometimes the ground controller is more busy than the local controller working airplanes in the air. Uh, LAX is a good example um, because they have to be um, sequenced and fed to the runway depending on what their flow time is or which direction they're going. Uh, little planes can generally, you, we just send them to the run-up area, let them do their run-up. Once they're done, we send them out to the runway. That's fairly easy. Um, getting airplanes in and out of their gates can be tough, especially if their gates occupied and we have to put the, um, inbound airliner in, we call a, a penalty box or an, a holding area for him to sit, wait until his gate, uh, becomes available. So you're always shuffling airplanes around and it, depending on how many airplanes are on the airport, it can get very, very busy. And so a gate, um, for people who don't know, what is a gate? So a gate, when an airliner lands and he needs to uh, taxi up to the terminal building, um, another name for a gate would be the jetway. So the uh, airliner will pull up to his terminal and all the gates have their own uh, specific number depending on where they are. So if you're going to, I'm just making a gate five and uh you're assigned gate five by your company, you'll taxi to that gate. And when the plane turns in towards the terminal building, the gate or jetway will be moved up to the airplane so all the passengers can disembark from the airplane and head into the terminal building. So we generally call that a gate. Which I'm, I'm assuming most people who have flown with the airlines would be um, part of that process. So they can kind of visualize the what's the ramp thing coming up. What do you guys call that? The You said when they board and deboard. You know yeah, jetway. Yeah, yeah. Jet or a jet bridge. There's a lot of names for it. There you go. <clears throat> the jet bridge. I like that one. So, when what happens on a controller's end, as we see in this video, of a congregation of airplanes waiting to take off? How do you manage the flow of aircraft efficiently in this case? Because obviously, as a pilot, it gets kind of frustrating because you're sitting here with a bunch of people. You're like, why am I not going? Yeah, so that's another job of the local controller to juggle all that. Once uh, airplanes start to build up on the ground, you need to adjust your flow of aircraft in the air so you can get some of these departures out. You don't want them, all the departures building up uh, and then having a long line of departures waiting to go. Uh, so you build holes for them to depart and get them on their way. And is there a specific time that you're giving planes to take off in, or is it just kind of like you watch them as they do it, see if they're completely cleared, or is it kind of like a general, no, I know it's going to take this plane probably like 45 seconds to completely. Actually, it's very specific. That's part of going to the academy. There's um, distance rules and distance criteria for each plane. Generally, two small planes 
have to be 3,000 feet apart. So when you clear the first one, uh, as long as he's 3,000 feet down the runway, you can clear the second one. However, if the second one is uh, higher performance, maybe a twin Cessna, you need 4,500 feet between him and the little guy in front of him. And if it's a jet or something high performance, then you need 6,000 feet uh, for takeoff. But those are general rules. There's more specific, but generally there's distance criteria that every tower controller has to meet. Uh, so uh, he always ha- there's they'll have markers uh, or uh, mental markers in their head where they'll know the distance down the runway when a plane crosses that section. He'll know that he just uh, he was 4,500 feet apart and he can launch the next one. And that's part of your ground training for that specific airport, correct? You learn all the mental markers on the airport? That's or? correct, yeah. Got it. And are those preset markers that you're going to have or is that kind of just over time doing it with other there people? There are no or? preset ones, so it's all mental. Your instructor will generally tell you, okay, from the distance from the approach end to maybe the that sign is 3,000 feet and then you made mental note of that and that's way and that's how you uh, memorize that super interesting because it it really shows you how much more is going on i I didn't know that as in my personal training and it really shows you how precise everything is in aviation which i just find absolutely amazing so once the aircraft is ready to take off they usually say uh you know cessna 119 or two kilo uh switch to tower frequency um, which allows the airplane, once instructed, to take off and turn towards the heading. So at what point do you tell the airplane to switch to tower, and then how does the tower conduct themselves with the airplane from the ground? Uh, from the ground, it kind of varies by airports. Um, at John Wayne, the ground controller will tell you when to contact the, the local controller. Uh, there's other airports where as soon as you're done with your run-up, you can taxi to the runway all by yourself without talking to the ground controller anymore and switch to the tower all by yourself. It really just depends on the airports, um, the way they run it at that particular airport. Which makes sense because I know in my personal training I've had um, at my time at John Wayne, it's very precise and they say, you know, they'll tell me my call sign and switch to tower and then I switch to tower and then I go and I take off and say switch to SoCal. And I went to, when I was preparing for my check ride, I went to other airports and I'm like giving position reports. I'm like telling ground, hey, I'm off this. I'm ready to go taxi there. My, my instructor's like, these these people do not give right. a crap about where you are. They're That's just like, correct. <laughs> that would be correct. So <clears throat> usually at less busier airports or smaller airports, they don't, they they don't want any of that information from you. Got it. So they keep it pretty clean, I would say. Yeah. yeah. So, the, I mean, the bigger and busier airports are a lot more um, technical and precise with what they want you to do and where they want you to do it and when the transfer uh, control the frequencies. So in regards to the tower operation, we have a picture of a radar screen that you'd be looking at in front of us. What is this radar screen? Obviously, it's Long Beach's radar area. And what would you be looking at on this screen, if you can describe kind of what your view of it is? Yeah, this is kind of, uh, this is the uh, Long Beach uh, tower display, radar display in the uh, tower. <clears throat> the square boxes uh, around that you see are VFR reporting points. The dashed lines I mean, the in the very center of this uh, picture would be the three runways, the two six right and the two six left. It looks and like then, a horizontal slashed H. Yes, 
Um, and then the long runway, of course, is runway 30. And the dash lines that extend out from that are the ILS uh, course for the airport. The circle around the is their airspace. And as you can see, there's another bubble right off to the right. That's Los Alamitos airspace. So both of those bubbles touch each other, and those guys uh, have to talk to each other all day long and coordinate uh, their traffic with each other's traffic. So that's another aspect of Long Beach. The line at the bottom that kind of zigzags uh, is the shoreline, believe it or not. And there's another dash line near the bottom portion to the left. That's the ILS going into Torrance Airport. But um, So the airplanes themselves, I understand, are the blue dots with uh, like zero one zero. Yes, I was just going to get into that. So the... The blue square, the blue small squares uh, are the actual airplanes themselves. And the longer line that touches the, the blue square is the transponder. So the blue, the actual blue box is the, the raw radar hitting the aircraft and sending the metal reflection back to the radar. But the longer line is the transponder uh, tick that follows that aircraft. And we have little dots trailing behind it, right? Correct. The little dots uh, are to help you figure out what the direction of the airplane is going or his tendency or which way the, he'll be going or if he's in a turn or what have you. So if we're looking at that 010 right by the south side of Long Beach Airport, um, in aspect of when you're actually flying, I know personally, and you know, um, when you're flying around the air traffic controller, uh, they'll say your call sign, they'll say traffic off your 2 o'clock, 5 miles southbound, right? Um, how does that, when you're looking at this screen, how do you interpret that towards the pilot? Like how do you change that information from this screen to words that the pilot can understand? So when, as the airplanes get close to each other, uh, generally you will stop giving the, tra the um, clock position uh, traffic instead of saying uh, one o'clock and three miles. You may, once you're close to the runway, you may just say you're following a Cessna <clears throat> uh, ahead to your left on his base leg. But uh, as they get further and further, from the airport is when you start using the uh, clock positions for the aircraft. And so when they are further from the airport, how are you, because obviously when it shows up on the radar screen, I would look at that and I'd be like, okay, so let's look at the 019 compared to the 010. So would you say that air, let's just say they're three miles apart. Would you say that aircraft is at the five o'clock and two, three miles north or how well, do you... Well, that's where the little trails come in handy so you can see which way they're actually going. So um, believe it or not, all three of those targets with the little boxes on them are all helicopters. And we know that because the helicopters are, are given a discreet squawk at Long Beach, even if they go practice. And it, even, one of them might even be a Long Beach police helicopter. But we know that just those little square boxes are helicopters, and Long Beach has a lot of helicopters. They do a lot of helicopter training there. We did see a lot, that's for sure, when they were flying around. Yeah, they have three helipads there and uh, for, for training, and uh, it, the one at 700 feet, I'm positive, is on a base leg for one of those uh, pads. But um, you have to look at their trails and then determine which direction they are going, and then that's how you would determine in your head which, what am I going to say, 10 o'clock or 2 o'clock or 12 o'clock? So that's how we do that. Your job, you definitely need a lot of spatial awareness is what I've heard about, even though you're not actually 
being there, like an aspect of spatially seeing everything, you have to look at a screen and imagine yourself you're there at the same time computing the, the information towards the pilots. Yes. <clears throat> However, at some airports, that this particular screen does not have a lot of aircraft on it. A John Wayne radar screen can be filled with aircraft and it can get really tough keeping track of all the airplanes and giving them all position reports and all that. And especially when they're helicopters because we personally, as people who fly fixed wings, we look at helicopters as gnats sometimes because they're really hard to see. Yeah. <laughs> so when you're flying in the, the pattern, the, the, the controller, I know my personal experience is like, oh, you're following the helicopter on the downwind and you're just like looking for two minutes saying, I have no idea where this guy is, right? Um, and then all of a sudden they pop up out of nowhere because they just, they get the right angle. You know, they're not really facing straight and narrow anymore. Sure. So <clears throat> um, super exciting stuff. As a pilot, I am told by many experienced pilots, pilots that at the end of the day, an air traffic controller isn't always perfect and you are always the pilot in command, meaning it is okay to deviate from certain commands if it, if it affects your safety in flight. For example, when flying from John Wayne to Santa Barbara and along the coastal transition route, the controller wants to vector me miles out into the ocean. I have learned it is okay to say unable to, AC, to ATC, but you always have to give a reason. In that specific case, my aircraft is not equipped with flotation devices, and this breaks Federal Aviation Rule um, Federal Aviation Regulation 91205. These older pilots told me air traffic controllers may get upset, but if you have your reasons of why you aren't doing something, then ultimately it will be okay. Though this is not the best way to go, um, as a pilot, they say that if ATC really has a um, accidentally does something that's going to vector you into terrain or something without knowing it, it's always your responsibility to be that second decision. Yes, you're, you are the pilot in command of that airplane. So if the air traffic controller, by mistake, gives you an instruction that you feel that may, put sh that may reduce your safety or put you in harm's way, uh, that is your job to tell them that you cannot comply with that, uh, that instruction and you need alternate instructions because you cannot comply with that due to the safety of the aircraft. It's like the long, uh, LAX flight you were telling me about. Um, I think recently it was he got vectored over the mountains. Um, what was the name? Do you remember we were talking about that? I can't think of it off the top of my head. He got vectored over the mountains near LAX, um, and the controller was like, what the heck happened? He, we don't know how he missed some like the antennas and stuff that were sticking up off of uh, the pass. Do you remember I that conversation? I, I don't think that was um, – you had that conversation with me. I could be wrong. The only one that I recall was um, uh, there was a – it was a large jet that did take off from LAX on a heading towards the mountains, and the pilot had to um, – they took control of the all plane by themselves. Had they not, they would have flown oh, into yeah, – yeah. It was a long time, maybe three years ago, but yeah, I don't. That's what I meant, three years. Um, but anyway, so in a situation like that, obviously the pilot, um, I, I read the accident case, I mean the, the incident or accident report on this um, of what happened, right? Because this, this plane went over the mountains and they're like, um, why was it so close? Because it shouldn't have been vectored there. And the pilot didn't do his pre-flight planning. The weather was really bad. So he was on an IFR flight plan following the instructions. And he should have known that, hey, there was terrain towards this area and they had him taking off heading right towards the train and he just kind of followed ATC without using his actual noggin um, and so I just was kind of stressing the the importance of always being the pilot in command of your aircraft know your pre-flight um, 
surrounding areas. Make sure you're not going to do something uh, through ATC that may jeopardize your safety. Correct. So, but and you had mentioned the word unable. So, if you if an ins- uh, a controller does give you an instruction that you're not able to comply with, and all you say is unable, um, he's probably going to get. Uh, I'm not. He won't be angry with you, but you're going to. He's going to be perturbed because he doesn't know what what's going on in your head. So usually if you say unable and give him, just like you said, a reason politely, like I don't have any flotation devices in my aircraft, I'd like to stay closer to shore if you're able to do that, they will they will bend over backwards to help you. But generally, if you just say unable with without anything else, um, your services are not going to be as pleasant as if you would have given them a reason. Got it. Um, are we good, Adriana? Yeah, I restarted. Okay, sounds good. We can edit that out. Anyway, so next. Also, it's been like an hour 15, and I know you. Two hour 15. We're good. Yeah, okay. we're good. Uh, next slide. Sweet. So, restarting. And as far as the uh, tower goes, I noticed that there was a counter that I was super interested in because every single time a plane would land and take off, he'd like put in some, uh, some tabs as to the number of planes that were flying over. Can you kind of explain that process? Sure. So, uh, Usually at uh, smaller airports where they don't have the um, software or computing power for a computer to count all the traffic, the controllers have to manually count it uh, themselves all day long. And it's uh, totaled on every hour on top of the hour. So uh, looking off to the right, the uh, where it says LCL is a... Uh, local flight, or a, it could be a full stop landing or a, a takeoff on a uh, VFR aircraft. Uh, the AT on the next clicker on the next button is air taxi operations. So any air taxi uh, taking off or departing or transitioning would be counted on that. The MIL is military aircraft. So since Long Beach is uh, butted up right next against Los Alamitos, there's all kinds of military helicopters flying around. So if they fly through Long Beach's airspace or transition or anything, uh, we click them on that military button and we uh, hit that for the amount of number of helicopters or the amount of transitions they're going. The um, Actually, I get, this next one is civil. So that is the full stop and landings of all the aircraft. The local one all the way to the uh, top is actually transitions through the airspace. Flying over, basically. Right? <clears throat> Correct. So like if a traffic watch calls and says, uh, I'm following the 405 freeway at 1,800, I'd like to transition through your airspace. We click that local um, counter twice <clears throat> when he goes in and out of it, out of the uh, airspace. And you mentioned that the more planes that are going through an airspace or landing taking off the person working the local gets like a, a bonus or something or? not the not the person themselves so all the numbers are tallied uh, at the end of the year so the uh, the more airplanes you work the more you're going to get paid so um, we're supposed to be accurate when we click those clickers um, and as you your traffic count starts to build up the FAA starts to look at uh, a possible upgrade 
of your facility because you're working a lot more airplanes than you did before. So once you get an upgrade, you usually get a, a healthy pay increase in your paycheck. And now everybody in the tower gets the same one. So it's kind of like a, hey, if we get more airplanes, it's a good thing. But at the same time, it has to be accurate because you can't just be like, oh, tap, tap, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and we, sure. there's a name for that. We call that padding the count. So some controllers, when they're busy, they may not be paying attention and they may just start clicking it when maybe they're behind. Maybe they didn't click at all when they were super busy but maybe they were clicking too much, and we call that padding the count, which they're not really supposed to be doing. Well, I shouldn't say not really. They're not supposed to be doing that. It's supposed to be an accurate count. Which makes sense, but padding the count, I like that. And did you know personally people who padded the count, and you're just like, hey. Yeah. I won't comment on that. Uh, yeah, don't, don't, don't say any names, right? So is there anything else that I'm missing for the local that you would like to add or just the tower frequencies that they do or do we pretty much cover most of it? Uh, well, as you know, the tower, the local controller is responsible for <clears throat> separating all the planes in the air, getting them off the runway uh, in a timely manner so the next one can land, all the departures, um, all the arrivals, transitionings, anything going through, flying through his airspace, landing or departing is the local controller's responsibility. And it's a big responsibility uh, as you get busier um, because it, things can get really hectic. So everything has to be very organized and you have to have a good mental picture in your mind of what's going on uh, in the airport environment. So that's pretty much a wrap for the local tower and the tower control. So now on to the airport lighting. So we had the experience of looking at the lighting as you're flying over. Um, you can either tab it three or five or seven times depending on the frequency, I mean, depending on the intensity of the lighting that you want. And we actually went to a panel that had the different pa uh, switches for the, the, the lights on the ground. Um, there was the daytime one and then there was the nighttime. And it's a matter of just switching it on and off. So I thought it was pretty interesting in the aspect of the lighting's manually controlled um, through the tower. Correct. <clears throat> the picture you have displayed is actually the old lighting panel. Um, the new one, I don't know if you took a picture of it or not. Yes, is the I touch think it's our next uh, is the, the touch screen this panel. This one, right? Yes. So everything is much more automated. Um, you can see if you look all the way to the left under visibility, uh, you just pick the mileage of you that you have uh, visibility wise, or day or night, and uh, you just push that button and it will automatically set the lights to the correct intensity and which ones need to be on and which ones need to be off. Again, technology making the air traffic controls life easier, right? Quite a or, bit. Yeah, definitely able to differentiate. And it gives you a full run out of the runway, uh, telling you, does it show you where the lights are as well? Uh, no, it does not. Very interesting. So it keeps you... Uh, Makes it easier on you, and you just go over, press the button. So as for night flying, though, Long Beach turns into a uncontrolled, is what I believe. After right? the after the tower control uh, closes, and I believe Long Beach stays open all the way till eleven forty five p.m. So all the way up to that point, there's a tower person there. But from eleven forty five till somewhere around six in the morning, it's just like you said, it becomes Class D, D airspace. Yeah with no tower controller. And then the lighting turns into just the clicks on the radio, correct? Pilot operated, cor correct. Pilot so, operated. Um, three clicks might be low intensity, five clicks might be uh, medium intensity, and seven clicks on your transmitter 
might be high intensity. Which is good for depending on the runway that you're going into. Um, I had an instructor one time told me that he had a radio, um, the handhelds, and he'd be driving down the freeway up like the 15. You know how there's like those airports all along the side? And so he'll be tuning into the frequencies as he's driving and he'll like, he'll click the radio just to see the lights turn on in the distance. So I was like, that's kind of fun. Good idea. (laughs) Um, I mean, hey, if you have your... If your crew resource management is good enough and you kind of want to play around while you're up in the air on a long cross-country at night or something, you can just, you know, click on some airports. It's like, oh, hey, there it is, you know? Sure. Well, um, if you lose an engine, you may have to land at one of those airports. Exactly. So, um, Always be prepared, right? Yeah. Another favorite I saw was the light gun. And I had actually never seen or knew what a light gun looked like. And so at this point, you hear in your aviation training, which you can uh, check out at jplaviation.com, we go through all the light gun signals and everything you need to know about what happens if you lose your radio communications. So looking at the light gun itself, um, I noticed there was a cheat sheet one for the air traffic controllers because you, you can <laughs> see the on the far right picture, the cheat sheets right there on the light gun. So uh, yes, controllers can sometimes forget the... Um, obscure ones, maybe for, I'm just going to use a flashing white light, for example. Maybe not every controller can remember that. So we have just the little cheat sheet um, taped onto the light gun, and that's pretty much is, uh, happens at every single tower. Uh, they do that. It's not required, but uh, we do that because you can almost guarantee it's going to be used. And so when we turned on the light and pointed it inside the tower, not outside, we were safe people, don't worry. Um, It's actually not a bright light. It's kind of just like a glow, and you point it up at the airplanes in the sky, and there's actually like a little sight on it that you aim with. Yeah, so you don't want to blind, especially at night, just like you said, it's kind of a glow. If it was like a narrow beam and you you pointed it right at a pilot's eyes while he's flying at night, it could temporary... uh, blind him, not blind him, but mess up his night vision. Correct. So it's not a focused, uh, super bright beam, but, uh, sometimes it can be tricky to see in the daytime. Which makes sense because that's why it had kind of had a glow and not a beam because the beam wouldn't shine through the day. Yeah. So what we'll do is if it's in the daytime, the pictures you have displayed are with the uh, the shades down inside the tower. Uh, so there's no glare. We will probably, we most definitely, depending on where the plane is, or if he's on short final or final, we'll raise that particular shade and then shine the light gun out of the, <clears throat> the tower so they can see it a little bit easier. So if you're ever flying at night, lose your comms or flying during the day, they have the light guns. They're ready to go because general aviation students, you don't really think of it. You're just like, ah, oh, you just learned the light gun signals, right? That's just something you just got to know. But they're, they're ready to go. They're ready to be used even though... Sometimes they're used all a lot. Sometimes they're not used. Um, sometimes you'll go months without using them. Sometimes uh, you can use them seven or eight times in a week. It just depends on what's going on. And some, uh, some aircraft definitely don't have radios either. Um, so therefore, they couldn't go into control their space, um, like a Class D, for example. But still, um, if something were to happen, they had to land there. It's like, okay, this this plane without any radio communications need to land. So what are you going to do? Whip out the light gun. Yeah. Super exciting. So a big part of a controller's job is to know what to do when an emergency happens. During our time at the tower, we did notice a fire that was occurring near the airport. What would be the procedure for any fire-related emergencies? In this case, there was a red phone, I specifically remember. And you're like, that is the emergency phone that we go to. We call it the crash phone. So any any, um, 
emergency or even a potential emergency. Uh, for example, uh, a twin Cessna's inbound to the airport and he's already told us he's lost one engine. Even though he has not landed yet, we pick up that crash phone. It goes right to the police department. It goes to the fire department. It goes to uh, a few other agencies and all the equipment starts coming out. The, cr- the fire trucks, uh, police, um, and so we have it all, they're all ready by the time that uh, aircraft gets to the runway. However, once uh, something does happen on the runway that was not foreseen, we just pick up that same crash phone and the fire department comes out immediately and uh, starts doing whatever they have to. So what are some aircraft accidents that you may have seen in your time and how did you handle them? I've seen a lot. I've been through a lot. Uh, being in you it's hard to say but you cannot let it mentally get to you because depending on your staffing you may just have to continue to stand there and work airplanes so even though you may have seen something traumatic uh depending on what the staffing is available at that airport you may have to stand there and keep working airplanes so you cannot go into a panic mode uh you just have to deal with it and uh work around it and work all the fire department and whatever uh, to get to that scene. But generally, in your mind, you basically cannot let that incident get to you um, or you'll go nuts. So uh, I have seen a lot of incidents. I've been involved in many. I've had planes tell me in mid-flight they've just run out of gas and they fly into a house or land on the beach or land in the ocean. And um, it's just a lot of different uh, incidents, but you just have to work through them. It's super interesting because obviously aircraft accidents are not optimal scenario in any case. And as a traffic air traffic controller, you have to mentally be able to handle those while at the same time holding your responsibilities and duties in the aspect of, um, yeah, you're going to cater to that aircraft, but at the same time, there's other aircraft that may be in the sky um, that sure. you're going to give priority handling to that one aircraft in the distress, but at the same time, you have to be able to maneuver or lead all these other aircraft. Sure. So let's say, <clears throat> I'll use the same example, maybe a twin Cessna has lost his engine. He's got an engine, on that same engine is on fire. He's got He's got smoke in the cockpit, uh, flames are coming off the dead engine, and you've got a lot of airplanes in your airspace. You need to scatter all those airplanes, and just like you said, you need to give priority to the aircraft in distress. So uh, you have to be able to, to come up with a plan right away and administer it, execute it. Um, you may have to send some planes away. Some may have to go to a holding pattern depending on how bad the emergency is. But uh, even if plan A doesn't work, you need to have plan B in your pocket and uh, execute that immediately. Um, So emergencies can be tough, but you have to, you cannot think about them. You don't have time to think. You have to uh, react instantly and come up with a plan and execute it. In your pilot aviation training, Emergencies are one of the most important things that you can ever study for. It should become memory, um, f- physical habits that uh, manifest themselves when emergencies do occur. And so it's it's good to know that 
training for ATC is also that extensive um, because obviously when accidents and um, incidents do occur, it is important for everybody on both ends, whether that be radar or uh, the pilots themselves to know how to handle every situation. Yeah, it's really hard to train for emergencies as an air traffic controller because there's so many different uh, uh, aspects and so many different things that uh, may have to be done as opposed to being a pilot, you're going to look for the safest uh, place to land immediately. But um, you're trained for that as a pilot, but training for emergencies in air traffic control is really tough. I think any emergency situation you can never really be fully prepared for, but any there's we can obviously learn from the past and the things that have happened. Yeah. So wrapping up Long Beach Tower, um, I, I loved going. It was super fun. And after that, uh, we went, we called it a day. And then um, after Long Beach in your career, you actually were at John Wayne for 22 years, correct? So can you kind of describe what would, that was like, um, everything that you kind of did there? Uh, John Wayne was a great facility, a uh, fantastic facility. <clears throat> There's a lot of airplanes going in and out of that airport. And um, that was probably one of the best towers for experience that I've ever worked at. Uh, so being coming from Santa Monica and Long Beach, it was easy to transition into to, uh, to Long or uh, John Wayne. Um, but you're uh, at the time that I went, you're paid more because you're working a lot more airplanes. But it is a lot more hectic. And uh, you only have two runways to put all those planes on the ground or get them in and out of the airport with and one of them is a super short runway. So uh, it's definitely a huge challenge to work at that airport, but um, I had a great time there. Would you say John Wayne was definitely <clears throat> the busiest airport you worked at? Or, uh, yeah, yeah, I would say that. And out of your time at John Wayne, what did you personally, okay, so in life you have failures, okay? And as an air traffic controller, if you mess up, you give a wrong call, you say something, how do you learn from those failures when every transmission you send is directly affecting a pilot and what they do? Like, how do you um, learn from those experiences when you uh, when you mess up, for example, right? Because obviously nobody's going to be perfect on all their calls. Well, um, believe it or not, I mean, that's what we strive for. So, um, yes, they do. They will make some phraseology mistakes generally. The transmissions that are um, that go out are sometimes you can have a session and you're I mean usually you can just be 100% correct. Um, phraseology wise, you may miss a word or two, but still the pilot understands what you need to do or what you want of him. So, uh, believe it or not, we strive for 100% um, accuracy all day long. Even planes, you know, landing on landing and taking off on the runway, it's dead on. We we apply the rules and we generally don't deviate from them. So in that regard, everything is done with 100% accuracy. The phraseology aspect, you might miss a word here or two, but um, generally we still strive for 100% accuracy. The big picture is the what's actually happening. You may say. You mess up, but you can always correct yourself. That's what the word correction is for. So uh, you'll hear that a lot from controllers. So if they do make a phraseology mistake, they will just say correction. Or they'll say they've used the wrong call sign on a, uh, 
on a plane they're talking, they'll just say correction. So, so can you walk me through what a day was like at John Wayne? You had John Wayne for 22 years, which was your longest time at a tower, correct? Uh, correct. And so can you walk me through of like what everyday life was like for you? Like wake up, go to work or? Usually I would work the, um, the swing shift anywhere from 12 to eight, one to nine or two to 10, something like that. Or I'd close the tower. <clears throat> I wasn't um, big on morning shifts. So when I'd wake up in the morning, um, around eight o'clock in the morning, I'd go mountain bike riding, come home, just eat something real quick and then take a shower and get ready for work. Exercise in the morning before I worked helped me mentally to have a clearer mind. So I usually went mountain bike riding every day and uh, before work. And then getting to work, it's a mindset you kind of have to prepare yourself for because you're going to be very, very busy. Generally, when you get up to the tower cab, if you're lucky, the supervisor will kind of ease you into um, uh, a slower position as opposed to a super busy position. However, you may get sent right to the Alliance and get thrown on a super busy position. You have to be ready for that. Um, it's just who needs to be relieved and who doesn't. So if you're lucky, you'll get sent to clearance delivery or maybe ground control for your first position and you ease your way into those positions. Generally, you will not work more than two hours on any given position. After somewhere around an hour and a half to two hours, the supervisor will start making adjustments for you to get a break. And he has to do that for everybody in the tower cab. Once your break comes up, you'll go downstairs into the break room. Uh, you don't have to go down into the break room. You can go outside and relax. You can go, there's quiet rooms where you can just sit and read. They have a computer where you can do stuff on the computer or just uh, whatever you need to do online. You can watch TV. Generally, <clears throat> stuff to relax, um, grab something to eat. And then after your break, you go back upstairs and you're probably going to get some kind of busy position. After you've been there for a while, even though it's busy, if you know what to do and everything's, you've seen the same situation hundreds of thousands of times, you already know what to do in your mind. So even though you might be really super busy, you're not that stressed out because you've seen this situation so many times, you know what to do. It's practiced repetition that kind of gets you the produced result of you being able yes. to just handle every type of traffic. Correct. So um, even though you're at a super busy facility, people think that you're under so much stress, but actually, since you've seen this so many times, it's almost like <clears throat> you can do it in your sleep or with your eyes closed. Not that we do that, yeah. but- um, Don't don't tempt them. <laughs> it, becomes, it becomes repetition. So, um, you know, I'm at John Wayne, they have set procedures, taxing out, taxing in. Uh, the pattern is very <clears throat> uh, tight. And um, generally, they only have three or four directions uh, arrival paths that <clears throat> the planes are coming in. So it's, it's a very organized um, operation at John Wayne. And it's so uh, after your second session, you may go down and you're ready for your meal break. You get a decent meal break. And um, you can leave the facility if you want and go to whatever close by restaurants uh, and grab something to eat, bring it back. Hour lunch break or? It depends on the, uh, the staffing for that day. Sometimes you may only get a half hour. Um, if the staffing's good, you'll get longer. <clears throat> I, 
if it's really bad weather, you're going to get an easy hour for sure because nobody's flying. Yeah, IFR, right? <clears throat> if it's raining, there's guaranteed a one-hour uh, meal break. But um, this, if it's busy and the staffing is uh, short for the day, <clears throat> you may only get 30 minutes. Sometimes you can even get less. But um, after that, uh, you go back upstairs and you work your next session. And... Um, Depending on how that goes, you may, after that two-hour session, you'll go downstairs and they may have you do some paperwork or just um, finish finish up for the rest of the day in the break room. But uh, generally you work, um, if you're there eight hours, you're probably going to work an easy six and a half upstairs in the tower cab. And what I've understood is that at each station, you're only allowed two hours each. That's like the maximum limit. Yeah, that's due to the to the air traffic control uh, union agreement they have with the management. So generally, uh, you do not want to work any controller past two hours on any position because <clears throat> they start to get tired and irritable and antsy. And if it's super busy, two hours is enough. Which is a good thing because you don't want people to have those types of right. And also, I mean, once you start working a person that's under the really busy conditions for more than two hours, the the medical aspect is determined that uh, your memory can start. I wouldn't say deteriorate, but maybe if it was working at a hundred percent when you were fresh, maybe only ninety five percent. So you don't want to leave. You don't want to leave any of that um, out. You want a fresh controller, and you want them, uh, a fresh controller on every position when you can do that to, so everybody's fresh and safety is not deteriorated any part of the day. Consistency is key as an air traffic controller is basically yeah. what I'm hearing, correct? So you don't want to be lagging mentally be on one station because you've been doing it for so long. So when your brain changes from ground to airplanes in the sky, it's kind of a different motor function you're probably using is what I'm assuming. Yeah. So it, yeah. So instead of uh, getting watching airplanes on the ground, you need to shift your all your mindset to work, you know, looking out the windows uh, more and uh, having an... Uh, an awareness of airplanes in the air. So what station would you say was not only your favorite, but your strongest as well? Uh, the ground control and the local control were my favorite and my strong point. So I enjoyed working a lot of airplanes uh, in the air and on the ground. To me, it was rewarding. And what made you a good ground control? In the aspect of a ground controller, in the aspect of was it just the way you were managing things, or your time doing it, your experience, or all um, of the everything you've mentioned, all all the above that you just mentioned, all come to play into the, into that. Because obviously, as pilots, um, when you're talking to a good ground a good controller in general, compared to someone who's kind of not very confident they don't really know what they're doing and it's just like well they know what they're doing but they're not efficient at it yet you can definitely tell the difference like at john wayne when i was training um i'd be out in the practice area at the early um stages of my flight and there'd be a couple gals that were just phenomenal i thought at um guiding me making sure everything was um okay if i had a question i could just ask and they would help me out um and so i think it's very important to have ground controllers that are not only confident in what they're doing but they're able to also communicate with pilots um and i think that's the other 
topic that I wanted to get into was your communication with pilots. Is there like a standard um, to do it? Or is it kind of just personality wise for each uh, air controller? Like, is there a standard like saying you have, obviously there's the, um, the words that you use that communicate effectively, but as far as personality goes, does each controller kind of have their own way of manipulating the, the <clears throat> position or? The, I think the answer to that is yes. Um, I'm more, some controllers will speak to the pilot as just a, you know, an object in the air or just an aircraft. But when I talk to them, I speak to them as a human being. And so I may, <clears throat> uh, instead of using 100% FAA phraseology, I may just add a couple things in there to... Um, humanize the uh whatever i need to done uh a little bit more so um i speak to them as a human being not as a as a object or just a piece of aluminum in the air because it so, is a person up there who can think for themselves and it is and so i understand that a lot of these planes have 200 people on board and i want to give them every possible opportunity they need to do or, you know, fly the airplane safely in my airspace. So I personally speak to them as a human being, but there are a lot of controllers that will not do that and they just speak to you as an object, but there's, you still get the same service. They keep it very business oriented. They do. Say. It's just very strict. I'm a little less business orientated though. So I think every pilot can appreciate that. So thank you for doing that. Um, and as far as working with student pilots, do you have any um, advice for the student pilot themselves or how would you treat them differently? Um, student pilots need to be treated differently. However, in order for the controller to know that, the student pilot should tell the controller sometime either on the ground or in the air, I'm a, uh, I'm a student pilot. When you do that though, the controller watches you more closely and they pay more attention to you and they help you even if you're just doing touch and goes in the pattern, they will give you a little bit extra service um, because they know you're new and they know that you need help. So as long as you let them know that you are a student pilot, or even if you're on a cross country or something and you're having problems and you tell the controller, I'm a student pilot, I cannot find this airport, can you help me a little? That will go a long ways because the controller will bend over backwards to help that student pilot. And I think that's what's amazing about having the human factor in it. It's not completely robotically controlled like a, um, some people want it to be. Um, but with having that human factor, for this is a fun story about myself. Um, when I first did my solo, okay, obviously I'm nervous out of my brains. And so I hop in the plane, you know, family's all there ready to watch me go. And I hop on the radios. And I queue into the clearance because I, I, I taxied the, uh, the east side of uh, John Wayne. I never really went there before. I always came out of the west side. And I, I, I go on clearance. I'm just like, uh, I say my call sign. Then I'm like, a student pilot um, for solo. And th then I just like, I kind of brain farted. And then she was like, oh, would you like to fly? There was a, a lady. She's like, oh, would you like to fly the pattern three times? And I was like, yeah, that, thanks. And I said my <laughs> call sign. And then she went. And I just remember I was like, now that thinking back on that, I was like, she could have totally just been like, I, I didn't say anything right, right? Um, but she knew because I said student pilot, she's like, I was probably nervous my first time. She recognized that. Um, I ended up doing fine on my first solo. Nothing bad happened. Um, and I just, those are the the key moments for me that I remember just like, hey, there's a, I don't know that person in the tower, but I really appreciate you, you know? Um, so I, I think having that human element of it is also very um 
very important to not only student pilots, but um, being able to efficiently um, communicate in whatever situation you may be in. Yeah, you touched on a couple things that I'll just go over real quick. You mentioned that you were working with a, a female controller. When I was at John Wayne, the female controllers that we had were phenomenal. Every girl that I worked with at John Wayne did a phenomenal job. They were very, very good. Proud to work with every one of them. They did a fantastic job. The student pilot issue at John Wayne, typically after the student's already done a couple touch and goes with his instructor and he's ready for his solo flight and the plane gets off the runway, the instructor will hop out and usually the instructor will say, I'm getting out of the plane and I'm gonna have my student do his first solo. So that helps quite a bit. The controller need will, they will give almost 100% of their undivided attention to that student going back to the runway, making sure he doesn't get onto an active runway by an accident, cross an active runway by accident, and basically just keep his eye on him, even though he's juggling all the other aircraft, he will give a lot of extra attention to that student pilot while even while just doing a solo flight in the pattern. So anytime you mention your student pilot or doing your solo flight or anything else that has to do with being a student pilot, helps the controller know that you are and things run a lot smoother when you let the controller know that you're a student pilot. So advice definitely for the up and coming pilots is always identify yourself as a student pilot because you're not going to be perfect when you're Correct. Learning. If you're already making a bunch of mistakes, which we foresee that as a student pilot, making a bunch of mistakes and you have not told us you're a student pilot, we're going to think you're just some dumb pilot that should really not be flying. You may start aggravating the controller if you would have told them that you're um, a student pilot, which would make things much easier. They'll get confused. Um, yeah, I've, I've had experiences like that. I was flying out the Oceanside on my first cross-country solo, and there was another plane flying out, a, um, I think, Sunrise Aviation, right next to me, literally the whole way there on his first solo, too. And I identified myself as a student pilot, but he didn't towards the uh, Oceanside Tower, I believe. They don't have a tower at Oceanside. Palomar? Palomar, I think that's what it was. Yeah, I was flying past Oceanside, more inland, um, towards, but that's what it was, um, the Palomar. And... I just remember this guy kept, like, he was bad messing up. Um, he forgot to squawk his code. He um, wasn't following the ground instructions properly. And this guy was just getting on him, right? Um, and I thought he was going to get, like, sighted or something. I thought something bad was going to happen. Then eventually he goes, like, uh, student pilot, like, sorry. Um, and then the guy was, like, then he kind of eased off once he realized he was a student pilot. And I was just, like, because um, obviously if you're a pilot and you start acting like an idiot, the controller's going to be like, who the heck is this guy, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> time to time to put him back in his place. But uh, the importance of the, the relationship between the pilot and the air traffic controller actually is important um, as they're communicating to establish the best way that uh, the pilot gets everything he needs done um, efficiently with the, the air traffic controller. So John Wayne, 22 years, fun time. After that, you went to... Seattle. I went to Seattle uh, Renton Tower where they build the 737 MAX 8s and MAX 9s. I, I did uh, uh, just under two years there. Two years. So this was towards the end of your career. It was, it was, my, it was at the end of my career. Uh, it was my last facility. <clears throat> I'm glad I chose there because it was a lot of fun. You have to work, um, even though you have one runway of land, you have a seaport right next to that runway and you're responsible for all the seaplanes, you have to give them a landing and uh, takeoff clearance from the water. 
and all those aircraft have to be mixed into the pattern too with all your other planes arriving to the runway. So it was very busy, very challenging, but very rewarding. I got a lot of perks, a lot of flights from a lot of the local pilots to a lot of different airports in the Seattle area, and uh, it was a blast. So you had a actual uh, seaplane port as well as a ground port. Right next to the runway. Oh, wow. So that must have been... uh, It was Obviously, the training for that probably was a little more intense. It was, because I had no training for that when I got there. So it took me a little while to catch all the phraseology of what they say uh, for planes landing on the water and taking off and the procedures. I, it took me six months to get it all down under my belt. But um, And what was the reason for that transfer? Why did you... Uh... I had finished John Wayne, but I thought I may want to move to Seattle for good. So I thought, what perfect way just to go work up there to see if I would like Seattle or not. The summers in Seattle are incredible. The winters is what killed me. It The particular winter that I was there, it rained almost every single day. And I'm not exaggerating. They had, it was the winter they got the most rain. They had 50 inches of rain for the rain season. And we get like, if we're lucky, we will get seven to 12 (laughs) down here. They got 50. That's crazy. And so driving to work every day in the rain, driving home every day in the rain in the winter. And it was just, I, I couldn't take it because, you know, growing up in Southern California, it's sunny almost every day. You like the sun. Yeah. Sun and dry. <laughs> yeah. Well, I like it to rain here because, well, you know, about it's... the drought situation, but um, every single day starts to get kind of tiring. Yeah. I mean, you really have to enjoy being soaked if you... Uh, yeah. <laughs> you I mean, no matter where places. you go, it's going to be raining. As an air traffic controller, though, there probably wasn't a ton of VFR flights going on. Believe is... it or not, they could care less about the rain. Those guys, are, <clears throat> those pilots are so used to the rain, it, it doesn't even phase them. They will fly in the worst possible weather and they will actually enjoy it because they could care less. I mean, technically, because stable air is associated with the, the rainstorms because you got that, that yeah. layer underneath the clouds. It's a that steady is... state rain. It's not like a thunderstorm rain. It's just a steady state. It's not even moderate rain. It's just light rain all day long, and it, the air's not really that unstable. It's pretty smooth, actually. So uh, even student pilots, you can have seven in the pattern doing touch and goes and, while it's raining. If you got your, uh, the ceilings are high enough, right? That, oh, that'd yeah. Be a, yeah. <clears throat> as for student pilots in the rain, that just makes a smoother landing, right? The, the water kind of just uh, <laughs> uh, arrow glazes the, I mean, uh, glazes over the ground. But um, yeah, that's super crazy. Think about your pilot training and if you were doing it in the rain all the time, how that would affect your flying for the rest of your career, you know, because that's just something you just became a part of, you know, for us in Southern California, we got perfect weather pretty much all the time. Yeah. Um, and so we don't have those types of experience. Like, hey, I'm just going to go fly in the rain all the time. I flew in the rain once and that's because it was like the Virga. I mentioned the- that to the Seattle controller. So I said, even a 10% of drizzle in Southern California, nobody even flies at least the VFR pilots don't. Oh, yeah. They just stay on the ground. In Seattle, if there's, if it can be raining all day and you can be inundated with airplanes. That's super crazy to think about. Just the, because um, you're obviously, how high were the ceilings usually compared to the? Probably three or 4,000 feet. And that consistent three, 4,000 feet, you would say? Pretty much, the- yeah, I would 3,000 for sure. So that doesn't even phase those guys. They, they think that's perfect flying weather. Yeah, well, I think we definitely here in Southern California need to need to step up our game a little bit. Um, yeah. 
So Seattle was good though, overall? You... It was a blast. I loved it. Um, I just couldn't handle the winters. Um, it did snow a few times and I've got summer tires on my car. So sliding around on the freeways when those few days it was snowing was not fun at all. Uh, you don't like the slip and slides <laughs> no. as you're going 60 miles an hour. But um, that's awesome. So closing up the your time as an air traffic controller um what would you say what was your favorite place to work at and like with crew wise too like who was your favorite crew that you had that you would work with um there was uh i john wayne would be my favorite facility and i had <clears throat> i worked with um for most of my time there i worked with a specific crew that were all <clears throat> about my age we either had prior experience or some of them were uh from the military and we all did, we knew how to run airplanes. We ran a lot of airplanes. Um, there's that movie called Pushing Tin. We'd, that's what we would say. I mean, we would push a lot of tin at that airport. We'd move a lot of aluminum. We'd move a lot of small airplanes. We'd get them all on the ground uh, safely and efficiently. And we ran a lot of airplanes. They don't, um, right now, we don't have that traffic count that we used to at John Wayne, but... Um, the crew that I worked with, I would say, were the very best. Which makes sense because you spent the most time there. I can imagine if you got with but the crappy we, crew. It was also like... a lot busier, too, when I was there. So we were used to running a lot of airplanes. I don't think they run that many airplanes. Uh, since I still fly there, <clears throat> it doesn't seem anywhere near as busy it used to be. What was your uh, biggest obstacle as a air traffic controller, would you say? Just like in, in, in general the flying the the lifestyle what would you say was the biggest obstacle for you every single day lifestyle was not a problem because it fit right into my lifestyle i loved aviation um there were years where we were really short and i wasn't where we would have to cut our vacations out that was really tough or <clears throat> working a six-day work week 10 hours a day when you're super short that gets old really, really quick when you only have one day off and you have to get all everything, all of your errands done, all of your, do, you know, whatever you needed to do. And a two-day weekend all has to be crammed in a one-day weekend. And uh, working six days a week, 10 hours a day when you're short uh, gets really old and re uh, really quickly. And you come home and sometimes you're you're really beat and you know you have to go right back next day and do it again. But uh, it's still my best facility. Got it. But the paycheck is probably like, you know, <clears throat> you're, you're working a lot, so you're getting a well, nice paycheck. Well, when you're working overtime in a six-day work week, uh, your paychecks get big very quickly. So moving past your struggles that you had, um, what did you do during the six-day work weeks in order to mentally get ready for the the next transition yeah that's tough and that's still going on at a, a lot of uh, airports around the country there's still facilities large facilities uh, like in the New York hub Atlanta Chicago Hare, LAX San Francisco Seattle area uh, they're still really short of controllers and uh, a lot of those guys uh, are working six-day work weeks 10-hour days working through that aspect is tough on anybody but you just kind of deal with it and you almost get used to it but still uh just with your one day off is pretty hectic you can't almost can't even relax because you know you only have one day off and you have to go back to work the next day so it's tough 
takes a mental toll, but there's a lot of jobs out there that obviously are physically and mentally demanding. Um, and so it's just a matter of picking yourself off your feet every day and just striving towards your goal. Yeah, so I still kind of tried to carry through the same routine, getting exercise before I went to work and, you know, eat healthy, go to bed on time, don't stay up late. I'm not a drinker, I'm not a smoker. So, I mean, I try to stay healthy, keep my mind clean. Which I, this is kind of the what I'm leading into next, an aspect of your leadership characteristics. Like you may not consider air traffic controllers as like leaders, but to me, I think they really are um, because they're obviously coordinating traffic all day. And it's like, yeah, it's a job. It's what you train to do. Um, but there is some, some, as you were talking about, the things that you did every single day in order to, I know I have to be ready for my job every single day. So what am I going to do? I'm going to install habits in my life, the discipline aspects. I'm going to go to bed early. I'm going to eat right. I'm going to make sure I'm healthy by exercising every day. Um, so what are some of those characteristics of yourself that kind of made you into the leader that you could be while you're operating at the job? Well, I think you just mentioned a lot of them. Being aware of your surroundings and of what you need to do. You mentioned the things that like going to bed early and, um, you know, getting exercise, eating healthy. That, I think the person needs to take that upon themselves. I have seen the other end of the spectrum where some controllers are just a hot mess. They drink, they smoke, they shake on position. They're a nervous wreck. They're not really adapt to working a lot of airplanes. Maybe some of them should have worked at slower facilities. That's the opposite end of the spectrum, and there aren't a lot of them. But when I see them, I, you know, I want to help them and say, stop smoking, stop drinking, stop eating Snickers bars and downing three Cokes on position uh, because you're a nervous wreck. So, but those are far and few in, in between. Generally, most of the controllers try to lead a healthy lifestyle. Because not only is their job high stakes in aspect of what they do, they have to be mentally prepared every single day. And even though they may not physically be in the best shape, right? Um, as an air traffic controller, you have to have kind of that sound body, sound mind in order to perform every day at a high level. Right. Um, and I think part of what I'm uh, getting into is the eating right, the habits you're installing yourself, uh, installing for yourself every single day is what's going to lead to success. Because yeah, there's guys out there who can drink a bunch and they can, um, they can still be productive at their job. But I'm saying for if you're going after something in your life to optimally reach the highest level, you have to make the sacrifices of studying when everybody else is outside, having fun, um, when, uh, you know, not going out with your buddies or not drinking, being a physically fit, being mentally fit so that you can perform at the optimal level whenever you are called. Um, and obviously as an air traffic controller, yes, you're not necessarily physically lifting a bunch of stuff every single day, but it's like taking an SAT in high school. Sure. It mentally takes a toll sure. every single day. Yes. Um, you can get physically tired, I believe, from mental work. Uh, oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I agree with that 100%. So after a really busy session and of straight two hours of working heavy traffic and you go downstairs, it's just like you said, it, you're just emotionally and physically drained and very much physically. I mean, sometimes when you get home working, uh, heavy traffic all day, you're just like, all you want to do is just go to sleep. <laughs> Sit on the couch. <laughs> yeah. Just, just veg out for a little bit. Um, and how important was rest and recovery for you mentally? It's super important. It's super important to, for, for me and anybody else, because if you don't uh, allow yourself that rest and let's say you decide to go after a busy day and you're just shot and you go home and you want to just do 
Xbox or PlayStation all night with your friends, you're going to come to work the next day not prepared. And I've seen controllers do this and they're just, it just snowballs and gets worse and worse. And then eventually after two or three days, they just, as soon as they go home, they sleep for the next 10 or 12 hours because... They need to catch up. Exactly. Right? Sleep is very important. So when you're, if you're studying, if you're studying for anything, if you're training for something physically, sleep is one of the best, a regular sleep schedule is one of the best things you can do for yourself. Yeah, exactly. So I kind of made it uh, a mental note, depending on what my schedule was, that I had to be asleep by a certain time, depending on what shift I worked. Um, so I wouldn't stay up late um, because if I did, I know the next morning I'm just going to feel like crap. Feel super tired. And I think personally at my age with people, um, they don't understand sometimes when I tell them like, oh, hey, like I'm, I'm they call me grandpa sometimes because like I'm going to be in bed by like 9, 930 max. Right. Uh -huh. And they're like, why are you going to bed? The night's still young. I'm like, no, my, my, my butt's going to be in bed. I'm going to be sleeping because why I wake up early in the mornings in order to get stuff that I need done. My days become so much more productive when I'm able to um, establish a set schedule for myself. And yeah, people may not understand it, but they will down the road if what I'm doing every single day is productive, it's going to show. It's going to show over time. Um, and so no matter what profession you're in, no matter what your career, I think it's such a good idea for anybody who's pursuing something to establish kind of that discipline aspect in their lives. Absolutely. So I'll just give you kind of the same situation since most of the towers that I worked at are close to the beach. All my friends after work would say, well, let's go party or let's go surf in the morning or something. And I had to study or whatever, go to sleep. I would just tell them, no, I can't. I'd have to make a decision and tell them, no, I can't do that because I've got my career and it's a little bit more important. So I have to sacrifice some stuff in order to keep a healthy lifestyle and prepare myself for work the next day. And do you talk to any of those people still that you had in your life from a while ago? I do. And they're not in the same boat uh, that I was in. So partied, they surfed, they, they screwed off. And now a lot of them don't have you know, decent careers and it's suffered in the long run. It's the time investment, honestly, for most people is they don't realize, especially with uh, people my age, is that they don't realize all this time they're spending on the weekends, going out with friends, or they're going out. I, For example, I was talking to someone, and for example, I'm just going to shout it out here, ASU, okay? Apparently, their weekend is like Sunday through Tuesday. Because, I was going to say, they don't have a weekend there. Yeah. Every day is a weekend. I mean, the work weekend. week. Sorry, not the weekend. The work week. The work week there is, is Monday. There is no work. Every yeah. day is a party there at the... Well, I, sh I mean, I'm not going to rag on ASU. I know, but that's this is just an example I'm throwing out. That they have like wine Wednesdays. Um, <laughs> it's like drink, I don't know, something with Thursdays. And then Friday is like the the, des the designated party day. And then Saturday and Sunday are just like, you go party yeah, some more. Yeah, some and people just like, go to that school just so they can party. And that's the thing is like, there's the difference because some people they can be successful living that lifestyle, but it's a few majority. And I think that's a big lie that most people buy into is that they think, oh, I'm going to be able to invest my time into these things, um, but they're not going to see any reward from it. Um, yeah. So air traffic control, although it's a very elite career, <clears throat> you have to prepare yourself and spend, you have to devote a lot of time and energy to it. So um, it's almost like having, you know, being a doctor or surgeon, you have to it's a lot of time investment in your career and you have to make some sacrifices 
uh, in order to be successful. And would you say you're overall happy now with the sacrifices that you've made in your life, knowing that, hey, I did sacrifice my free time back then when I was younger? I did, and I'm glad I did it because it paid off in the long run. I had a very successful career, and um, I'm glad I made all those sacrifices and cut out what I, you know, things that maybe I could have done, but I didn't because I wanted to, you know, work towards my career. So it, in the long run, it definitely paid, paid out in big dividends. In the tower itself, um, you have a person who's in charge and that person I noticed was Joel at the time. And he, uh, was definitely using the, the whole aspect of air traffic control. They use a thing called decentralized command. Um, decentralized command is when you kind of delineate the process out to other people and say, Hey, I trust you to just go get this done um, <clears throat> because you've established yourself a good team. And so um, I noticed that was kind of like a form of leadership that was used in the tower. And it is effective, but only if all the, the, the parts are working, an aspect of every single person accomplishes their, their job. Um, and so I'm assuming you were um, the, the person in command for a lot of the time in many, the tower. <clears throat> many days. We were, um, so usually at night when the supervisors go home, they have to pick somebody. We call it a CIC or controller in charge. They'll, they'll separate one of the controllers and they'll make him an acting supervisor. Uh, sometimes he's the acting supervisor for the whole shift. And I routinely had to do that many, 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 many days. So although I'm not technically a supervisor, I did all the supervisory functions, and I, um, I've, I've done that many, I can't even count the days. It would be in the thousands. And so mentally, when you're preparing yourself to be a supervisor, um, or not necessarily the CIC, right? Um, is what you call it, controller in charge. Um, what you do, how you act, how you address people in the the tower itself all affects how you function as a team um and so i was wondering what kind of values you hold that inter- that affect your interactions every single day with people that you're working with um let's see values i mean i try to treat everybody equally um in the aspect of being in charge and saying okay i have this I have these people on my team. I know the strengths and the weaknesses of each one. But even if you don't, um, when you're interacting with them, how do you lead them to get to do their job efficiently without like, um, or, or if they mess up, how, how do you kind of um, engage with them? Like, what was your thought process behind that? Generally, with each other, we try to promote everybody do a good job all day long. So even with just camaraderie with each other, we I mean, we all want to do a great job because we all want to move airplanes and we all want it to get done efficiently and safely. So in that aspect, I never had to tell anybody to do a good job. When somebody made a mistake, you don't want to scold them, but you, I kind of just suggested, hey, maybe if you do it this way, it'll work better. Um, I didn't want to, I'm not that kind of type of person that, uh, that will stand behind you, nitpick you on all the mistakes you make. During the day when you are in charge, the responsibility is huge. You have to make some command decisions that could be looked at by the regional office, depending on what's going on. If you've had an incident that could get into the news or the media, that's going to be scrutinized. You have to make a lot of command decisions. You don't want to make any dumb decisions. 
everybody's kind of working on the same page. We all understand that. And nobody wants to look bad in the limelight. So we all generally try to do a very good job and we all get along with each other. Even though we have a lot of different personalities may vary quite a bit, we still try to interact with each other and get along with each other all day long. You're being a cohesive unit is the end goal through means of striving towards the same goal. Right. Exactly. And I think that's why it's important for people to establish a goal in their lives, whether it's with your your husband or wife someday, whether it's with your teammates. If As long as you're striving towards a same generalized goal with someone, I believe that humans can interact with each other a lot better because of it. Um, they, they establish kind of their value system, whether that value system may be a sports team that is wanting to win the championship. No matter the personality differences on that team, the people who are on the team um, – if they're all striving towards the same thing, it's going to get done, right? Especially if everyone's giving their best effort. And so I think in an air traffic control tower, in the aspect of a cohesive team um, and the leader in charge, how you interact with them every single day to present that goal. And if everybody's striving towards the same goal, I think that's kind of a, um, a good, good goal to have. Yes. <clears throat> so you mentioned the team aspect. So very much we work, you're actually you mentioned teams, so we have specific teams. You might be on uh, team one with, you work with a specific group for at least the next four months and your goal is the same. Everybody wants to do a good job and um, everybody wants to get everything, you know, everything run a smooth operation during your shift and it's very much a team concept. Yeah, obviously, even in life, no matter what profession you're in, you're always gonna be working with people. And so you have to be able to um, find that common goal and strive for it. Sure. So um, do you have, if you don't mind me asking, do you have a family, I'm assuming? I do, got, yes, I have uh, a wife and three kids. Got it, so you're definitely the leader of the home as well. No, um, my, my wife and I, we're equal partners. So my wife does a very good job of, um, she did a very good job of raising my kids. I think, uh, I, I, I didn't mean it that way. I meant just like wording it <laughs> as- You're uh, a male chauvinist. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah is definitely. Bring, bring it all up right now, right? Um, <laughs> I meant it as uh, responsibility right? Um, leading your family, because obviously you can have two people leading the family, but I'm just saying in general, as a, as the father figure in the family, um, you have responsibility from that. Um, and so how has that responsibility of being a father while also in your career kind of shaped you into who you are now? Yes. Being a, I mean, being a father is a huge responsibility. It's, it would be the same or maybe as more, uh, as your career <clears throat> to raise your family and um, <clears throat> that takes a large portion of uh, your energy all day long of raising a family in addition to going to work. So um, you want to you wanna raise your kids kind of like, you know, you want them to have the same goals and um, ambition as you do. So and it's a big part of your life establishing your your kids with the same goals as you um, whether that may be is is definitely important um, and so I think just moving forward as a air traffic controller when you tell people in your life what you do do you get like any fascinating remarks from people just like because obviously air traffic controllers are like the center on the football team okay nobody actually knows the center all the time if, if he does his job right correctly he's not gonna get any attention from it but it's the one time he messes up 
that it's like, oh, it's that guy that did this one thing, you know? It's funny you bring this up because air traffic controllers generally, for the most part, will not tell people what they do unless they're asked specifically. And even some of them, some of my friends that uh, work at LAX, they'll just say, well, I'm a, I'm a chef at a restaurant. Uh, they won't tell you that they're an air traffic controller because some people, then they go through the whole 20 questions like, oh, aren't you, I mean, aren't you a nervous wreck? I said, how stressful is oh, it? Oh, the stress, right? And yeah. they get the same questions and they don't want to, you know, they get sick of answering that, but some, you know, or generally they just don't want people to know that they are an air traffic controller. So unless you ask me, I will not come out and tell you I'm, I, um, I am or was an air traffic controller. I generally... I won't lie about it. If you ask me specific questions, I won't tell you. I'm a cook, um, but I'll generally, I, I don't go bragging that I'm an air traffic controller. You're not going to, it's not like a massage <laughs> therapist, right? A massage therapist, you tell people that, and then you're going to want a massage, right? Um, that's, that's something that most people that you just don't go, don't go tell. So I can tell as an air traffic controller, what would be the reason to not tell people? You know what I'm saying? Because like a massage therapist, you say your massage therapist is like, oh, well, can I get a massage? You know, because like... I'll give you an example. We had a guy in John Wayne Tower. He was also, um, he was a Navy SEAL before he was an air traffic controller. However, though, even though he was an air traffic controller, the government can still recall him at any time if a, a situation arises where they need more Navy SEALs. So we knew he was a Navy SEAL, but if you asked him what he did in the Navy... He would, ne he would never ever, he would just make things up. He would just say, oh, I was a, I was a cook in the mess hall. But we knew better. We yeah. knew he was a SEAL, but he would never, ever tell you that. Just a stud human being probably too. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know if it's because the government didn't want him talking about it or he was like us. He just didn't want to discuss it. Got it. He's, he's out there, this super special secret ops, and then he's uh, just ends up being an air traffic controller. <laughs> right. I mean... It's like a CIA agent or FBI agent. They're not going to go bragging to, you know, that they work for the CIA or FBI. They don't want people to know. So you probably worked with a lot of different people in your life. Have you made any, like, long-term relationships out of it? Sure. Uh, I made quite a few. So you build relationships working with the same people, and um, you have the same interests and same hobbies. So <clears throat> I've made a lot of friends. That's uh, super exciting because obviously moving forward in life, uh, it's good to have people around you that you can rely on. Right. Um, and so what are your personal goals now that you're retired? Uh, my personal goals, I want to just continue to see that my kids build on a successful career. I'd like to see my wife retire and then get on with that portion of my life where we can just travel around the world and do, you know, things like that. Fly around the world and then travel? Fly, or? fly too, yeah. Because I'm going to say, <laughs> once you're a pilot and you hit that the, the retirement age, you're not going to be traveling in the RV everywhere, you know? It's like, hell yeah, let's go take the, the planes and <laughs> yeah. get there a lot faster, right? Mm -hmm. So all the young and old aviators out there, as the director behind the scenes of aviation traffic, do you have any general advice for those to continue their career? I have some advice and I have a request. I'd like to see, when I worked in the tower at John Wayne, I did a lot of Boy Scout and Eagle Scout tower tours. I, I wanted to promote air traffic control and aviation. So uh, just last weekend, I did a Boy Scout merit badge. They did their aviation merit badge. We had uh, three planes available. We let them climb into the airplanes. I did this talk just like I am with you. So I try to promote air traffic control and aviation. I would like to see anybody listening. If you're not set in your career and you'd like a very rewarding and challenging career to please 
take the written test for air traffic controller because we're still really short in the country and we can use all the help we can get. So if you can get along with other people with diverse personalities, you don't necessarily have to be good in like algebra or calculus, but if you can look at a radar scope and see, oh, this plane's moving really fast and in one, he's here right now, in one minute he's gonna be here. And if you can do that mentally, we have a really good career for you. I would love to see any, or hear any of your listeners that are listening to get started in the aviation or air traffic control career. And where would they go to for air traffic control specifically? Where would they go in order to accomplish that? Okay, so I, I had a feeling you may ask this and I'm not quite up on it. Um, I know you can go to the faa.gov website and they will they make announcements on when they administer the written test. Usually it's a couple times during the year. In Orange County, I believe you take it uh, in the federal building. Uh, in Los Angeles County, I'm not sure where, where you would take that written test. <clears throat> but they administer it a couple, year, or a couple times a year. And you just need a, probably at least a bare minimum of a 90 or a 95 uh, for, the, <clears throat> for you to make the cut and then uh, once that happens the government will contact you uh, and they'll let you know exactly what needs to be done further to get you get the ball rolling and get you started i think after this podcast as well um, you can go visit jplevation.com and we'll have a full bio page for brian and anyway for our listeners if they want to um, access further and their their flight training or if they want to learn how to become an air traffic controller i'm sure we'll put all the links up there um, upon further review um, and on that note i would just say thank you brian for coming out and the wonderful experience that we had at long beach tower and uh, jpl aviation where leadership and aviation take off thanks for having me justin it was uh and it was great to give you a tour up in the tower and hopefully uh your listeners can um maybe contact you or somebody and then we can get them up for a tower tour as well yeah, uh, just jplevation.com where leadership and aviation take off. I'll edit that in later.